When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Wednesday, October 13th. Today, I am joined by Darius Dale of 42 Macro. Darius, welcome to the Daily Briefing. Yo, Jack, what's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing well. Lots to talk about today, Darius. Uh, as you know, we had the Consumer Price Index come out this morning, that measure of inflation. And inflation runs stubbornly hot. We had a 5.4% year-over-year increase in the Consumer Price Index. Uh, that's slightly above the 5.3% that was expected by uh, economists. So I want to ask you, Darius, uh, is inflation transitory? Has it, has it proven to be more transitory than people have expected? Excuse me, less transitory. Yeah, well, certainly less transitory than I think uh, a lot of Fed economists have expected. But the reality is the transitory nature of inflation was never going to be defined in this period. It's going to be defined over the ensuing 12 to 18 to 24 month period. Um, and you, we just updated our models, obviously, after the data was reported today and, and really no change on that front. You know, we're talking about an inflation rate that's going to go from 5.4 percent headline to around about to around about 3 percent headline a year from now. And so it's transitory. This is what I've been saying uh, for, for months now. Inflation is transitory in rate of change terms. Like we're not going to go off the top of this page into the into make new highs. It's going to peak and roll over at some point. It's also persistent um, with respect to the level of inflation, as you see the far right of that chart. Um, these are our inflation projections updated through September of 22, and you see the bottom of that chart there. We're going to start to bottom at a level that's much higher than we're used to bottoming with respect to that time series. And this goes back to the point I've been making uh, really since May. Look, the stationary mean of inflation of this time series and really many inflation time series in our economy are transposing themselves higher in real time right in front of us. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to go straight off the top of the chart. It just means we're going to start to oscillate that 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 sign pattern, that 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 stationary pattern is going to start to oscillate at a much higher level than we're used to. And that's probably what the Fed wants, right? Darius, can you walk us through what what's the difference between the secular view on the left and the cyclical view on the right? Oh, well, it's, uh, that's pretty easy. One's just a 30-year chart, one's a five-year chart with a one-year forward outlook. Okay, thanks. So your your view is that uh, it will moderate, um, but the, the question is how much. Um, Darius, before we get into its impact on asset prices, let me just you know quickly read what was hot um, and what wasn't. As a matter of fact, we can, um, excuse me, um, we can take a look at uh, this this table from the CPI um, which shows that it was food inflation was stubbornly hot, uh, uh, about 0.9% month over month increase. Likewise with energy um, and the stuff, the, really everything was up, um, used cars as well. The only thing that wasn't, uh, did not increase, that was a major factor was medical care services. Uh, mm -hmm. I also suppose owner, owner equivalent rent went up as well. That's shelter, which is 32.5% of the CPI. Um, so let's put that down. Uh, what surprised you and what, what didn't surprise you in terms of the, the sectors? You know, I mean, beef went up 4.8% month over month. Like that's, this is this is inflation that we're seeing. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And so nothing surprised me directionally with respect to this print. 
However, I did think that there's some dynamics in there that we do need to unpack that are pretty important as it relates to the near-term outlook for inflation and potentially for asset markets. Um, you know, so obviously we're showing annual or year-over-year -year rate of change statistics in this chart table here. But what I think has been most instructive with respect to getting asset markets right in the year-to-date is actually identifying trends in the annualized inflation rates. That's those charts that I, I put up with the three panels there. Uh, so if you look at headline, headline actually ticked up to 5% on an annualized basis. I'm looking at the month-on-month -month change uh, on, an annualized, uh, rate, on an annualized basis. And that ticked up to 5%. That's down from 11% in June. So we've cooled off, but it's actually starting to stabilize around 5%. That's obviously much higher than what we've seen um, in, in recent years. Uh, not this chart, but the, uh, the, the, the Bloomberg charts. Uh, core, core CPI, that ticked up to 3%, again, down from 11% in June, uh, but it's still much higher than what we're used to. And then lastly, to me, this is the most important chart. If you got that median CPI chart, Jack, um, median CPI, I think this is, to me, this is the big- you know, This right? one, this one. This chart here. So if you look at the bottom panel of that chart, uh, that shows the annualized percent change. Um, as you can see, <laughs> the annualized percent change is now tracking at 557 basis points or 5.57%. Uh, you draw a line straight across this chart to the back left, and you got to go all the way back to August of 1990, to find an annualized percent change in median CPI. And so what this means is that we are now starting to see a real deepening of price pressures throughout the US economy. This is no longer about pandemic impacted sectors and semiconductors and you know, all the things that we wanna sort of point to and say, hey, okay, this is you know, the, the, the wonky economists, the Fed will point to and say, hey, it's transitory, it's transitory, you know, inflation is gonna go back down. This is telling you we're having a real firmness to inflation that may not you know, keep the year-over-year rate of change statistics um, accelerating as we sort of encounter difficult base effects over the next 12 months, but it certainly does lend credence to the view that, hey, inflation's just gonna be a lot higher than we're used to over the next you know, two, three, four, five years, mostly as a function of, of the sea change in monetary and fiscal policy. Darius, what, what do you, are you forecasting forward in terms of the, the grid regime? There, there's, there's Goldilocks, there's reflation, there's inflation, and then deflation. Uh, what are you seeing and why? Yeah, so uh, in that chart, I think it says welcome to grid zero. That's our US uh, grid model chart. We run the grid model for all the major economies in the world. Um, because sort of the, the real interesting dynamic that occurred after we uh, updated the models today is that you know inflation or stag inflation or what we call stagflation actually became the modal outcome for the month of October and the month of November. Now, these are four looking projections. Obviously, we haven't gotten October and November data yet. I suspect, just given our view, that growth data are likely to bounce um, in October, November, and potentially even beyond that, um, I suspect those I's will turn into R's in that welcome to grid zero chart there. And so what this likely means is that the, the economy itself could potentially be setting up for reflationary impulse, uh, albeit a transitory reflationary impulse. And this is something you know we've been talking about this since August, and now we're really starting to get real uh, incremental data that the inflation component might actually uh, corroborate that as well. Mm. Darius, let's talk corporate earnings. Today we had two very interesting earnings releases, one from JP Morgan and the other from Delta Airlines. Uh, JP Morgan had an earnings surprise of $3.74, higher than the $2.97 that was expected. Uh, the deal makers had a great year. year. Bonds keep on flowing. The IPO machine is, is churning. Uh, the M&A action is, is there. But loan growth has stalled, and that has some investors worried, uh, clearly, because the stock was down almost 3% today. Um, and then Delta posted a profit, Delta Airlines posted a profit of 30 cents per share, 74% uh, upside surprise from the 17 cents expected. 
And I would take that. I mean, an airline during COVID earning money, like I'll take that. That's good. But the stock was down almost 6% uh, as Delta warned, warned of surging fuel costs that would crush their margins, uh, forecasting uh, gasoline costs of anywhere between $2.25 to $2.40. That is well above the, the normal prices for gasoline, which I believe last quarter was slightly below $2. Um, so Darius, how are you seeing um, inflation in the real economy coming through corporate earnings, you know, with the banks, you have inflation. Oh, inflation is good for the banks because it means steep yield curves. Well, uh, maybe perhaps not. And then Delta Airlines really getting schlacked today. Well, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think the, the, the key takeaway is that stagflation is bad for businesses. And this is why if we, the market regime, you know, we talk about the dominant market regime versus the bottom up macro regime of 42 macro, you know, ones what, what, what the, what's the weather in asset markets versus what, you know, what's the climate in the, in the economy. And the dominant market regime has been inflation or stagflation, as most people call it. And that's why you're seeing a, a, the emergence of volatility in a lot of uh, you know, sectors, stock factors, and risk assets in general. Uh, with respect to earnings, I mean, we, we've, we've gotten enough previews. So we got JP Morgan loan growth. Uh, today, we got uh, Delta Airlines on fuel prices, got Apple on chip shortages, uh, you got FedEx on, on delivery or, or, or you know, the availability of people and, and trucks. And then what else? Uh, we had a bloodbath and beyond on, on not being able to sell uh, people garbage for their homes. Um, you know, we're gotten, we've gotten enough previews on the earnings front that, look, this, this inflation, you know, the confluence of Delta, you know, Delta variant slowing growth at the same time, you're having a real rebound in inflation pressure, both domestically and abroad, mostly through the energy uh, price complex. You know, that's really created a real sense in the market towards the, a real lean towards stagflation. But when you actually start to unpack the market dynamics, the intra-market dynamics, you know, we continue to see evidence of the reflation trade brewing. Um, you know, when you look at the one thing we track on a daily basis, I uh, hear 42 macro is, is month-on-month sharp ratio dispersion across 50 different U.S. equity sectors and style factors. This is my attempt to sort of spot in real time, you know, what these sort of major pod shop type hedge funds are doing. It was the Citadels, the Millenniums, the 0.72s of the world. And consistently, Consistently for the past three weeks, three and a half, four weeks almost, we've seen a real emergence of pro-cyclicality in the upper quintile of that study and a real emergence of pro-cyclicality in the lower quintile of that study in the sense that it's all defensives, you know, leading to the downside and it's all, you know, cyclicals and, and, and things like high debt, high beta values, mid cap value. All this stuff is actually leading to the upside in, in terms of the composition of the upper quintile. You're seeing a breakout in the high beta, low beta ratio. All these things are really starting to show, suggest that, look, maybe those eyes in that chart that I highlighted are actually going to be ours, and ours are quite positive for cyclicals. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Welcome back to the Daily Briefing. Let's get back to top analysis of today's markets. Yeah, uh, so the risk on sectors like energy and financials are performing very well today's notwithstanding, and then the defensive sectors like utilities, uh, healthcare, and the more sort of staid, perhaps a little boring sectors, they are lagging the market. And that indicates that risk appetite is back. Yeah, no, I, I don't know if risk appetite is broadly back. I do believe, we, you know, certainly in terms of the near-term path for markets, I, do, I don't know that we're fully out of the woods yet in terms of running and putting that trade on in size. 
Um, you know, another thing that we track, you and I talk about the chart all the time, is is our volatility risk premium analysis that looks at um, the relationship between near-term implied volatility versus you know, our calculation of the rough volatility surface uh, on, a, on a trailing near-term basis in the context of you know, realized volatility trends. And that analysis continues to suggest that investors aren't, are, are, are already sort of kind of positioning for reflation. Um, what you're seeing in this chart, look at risk assets there. You know, they have a median implied volatility premium of 18%. Um, you know, that's much lower than what we've seen, in, you know, in and around these OPEX driven corrections. Typically, we've, you know, gotten up to 40, 50 percent, which is implies an investor consensus that, you know, learned its lesson, its concern, it's rushing to buy protection. And, you know, in this in this particular correction, since, you know, since September began, we have not seen that same type of behavior. In fact, we've seen in favor that suggested that uh, investors are increasingly sanguine um, with respect to how some of these market dynamics might play out. So, to me, I think that's why earnings season in particular was set up to potentially be a negative catalyst for, for investors. But you also have, obviously, a, a litany of high-frequency data. You got PPI tomorrow. You got retail sales and, and consumer confidence on Friday. Um, you know, So all these things could be setting up to give people like one last shot across the, the bow or a punch in the mouth. But the reality is I do believe you got to buy that dip because the market is setting up to go reflation to the extent we are right on our expectation that growth data is going to bounce in October, November, and potentially beyond. Darius, we've got that uh, dot plot up of the of the grids, the mean reversion on the top left, the crowding into shorts on the top right. Uh, so risk assets are in the first uh, uh, part of the chart alongside U.S. equities. Tell us what this means. Remind viewers what the x-axis is and what the y-axis is. Yeah, so the x-axis, if you're on the left side of the chart, that means your, your realized volatility is low relative to the last three months. If you're on the right side of the chart, that means your realized volatility is, is high relative to the last three months. If you're above the x, the horizontal axis, if you're you know, a positive value in the y-axis, that means the market is overpaying for put premium for, for near-term protection relative to the recent past. And vice versa, if you're at the bottom there, like TLT, that means the market is no longer willing to pay for put protection that's that in eyeballs points terms uh, that that's that's more than the recent past. And so uh, it's not necessarily where the level where these dots are. It's just where they are relative to what what we've observed throughout the summertime. You know, the market had really started to climb a material wall of worry starting in around early to mid-June. And what I mean by that is that, you know, risk assets in general were typically trading in a 35 to 55 kind of range on this chart, much higher on the chart on the, on the y-axis. And what that was telling you is that investors were growing increasingly nervous about the valuation, the price of the market, or whatever they were nervous about. They were staying along, but they were constantly overpaying for protection. So what I'm calling out now is that, you know, we're kind of in the thick of it as it relates to, you know, getting some of these earnings releases that are potentially be negative, getting economic data that could potentially be negative. We're kind of like, like right in the soup, and yet they're not willing to pay for a, a near-term protection. So to me, that is a vulnerability in the market uh, to, the, to the extent that, you know, if we have something like, you know, another Apple or JP Moore, you know, who, who knows what company it might be or what data set it might be. It's just telling you that this sort of path to get to a, you know, very positive, you know, Q4 reflation trade, because oh, by the way, the Fed's still buying $120 billion of bonds a month. Let's not forget about that. The path to getting there from today could potentially be murky. Maybe we retest the lows of last Monday. But again, I, I do believe you, you want to buy that dip absent further evidence. I'm glad you brought up the Fed, Darius. I'm very curious as to whether the continued release of hot inflation prints will sort of be behind the Fed and force their hand. They have to flee, flee inflation to taper as quickly as possible. Um, today, we had the release of, of September's uh, minutes from the Fed. Maybe we can talk about that, too. But 
Uh, first, Darius, I want to play a clip. I talked to uh, investor Peter Bookvar today on Real Vision Live, which is on the on the plus tier, and we had an hour-long conversation about inflation. Peter's got some very nuanced views. He said this about the pressures that central banks face uh, and their waning ability, perhaps, to, to fight inflation. So let's take a look, and then I want to get your take on it. When inflation is low, central banks essentially have a hall pass to go anywhere they want in the grand experiment of monetary policy. And they can say, yeah, we can do, we can do this because there's no inflation. Once there is inflation, that hall pass gets taken away, and they are then more beholden to the direction of it and how sticky it is. But we all know how difficult of a road this now is for them because of the position of global markets and the high level of debt in the real economy and the sensitivity we all have to rates and inflation and markets, that the world is just not positioned for a period of, of high and persi persistent inflation. Not that we were necessarily in the 1970s, but 1970s, we had a, a much lower debt to GDP ratio. We had lower valuations. We had a higher starting point with respect to interest rates. Now, obviously, interest rates spiked in the 70s, but there was, because of the low level of debt, uh, a level of absorption there with that jump in interest rates that didn't necessarily shock the world. So what do you think, Darius? The fact that debt levels are so high, central bank balance sheets are so bloated, interest rates are already so low, does that restrain central banks' ability to, to fight inflation and actually ensure or, or you know, make it more likely that inflation will be here to stay? Uh, it's, I'll, let, me, let, me, let me answer that in a different way. Are we sure they want to fight inflation? It strikes me as, as odd that they want to fight inflation. It seems like their mandate is to actually promote inflation if you look at the Fed. Um, we obviously adopted annual uh, or average inflation targeting framework, which was basically code for we're only going to focus on the labor markets until we get maximum inclusive uh, employment, which is obviously a very lofty goal if you consider some of the measures they're tracking. Um, it strikes me as odd. It strikes me that they actually want inflation. The reason, and you and I talked about this offline, the reason they float these sort of hawks, you know, every year, every year is a couple hawks. And like, you know, how funny is this, right? Go back to 2019, Bode's the most dovish guy in the world. And now he's the most hawkish guy in the world. Like, you know, again, all you just go find two FOMC, non-voting members of the FOMC, and that's their job to be hawkish. And the reason they're hawkish is because they don't want to let long-term inflation expectations and therefore long-term bond yields get out of hand. But what they really want to do is boil us in a pot like we're frogs. You know, that's that's the goal. Like all that debt is telling you the, the only way out is inflation. We're obviously not going to go to a big debt deflation. That's how you get fired off the chair if you're a polit politician. Well, that's the fastest way you get fired off, the, uh, voted off the island as a politician. Inflation will vote you off the island as well, but you get to at least maintain your comfortable seat for a little bit longer of a period of time. And so to me, I think inflation is absolutely the goal. They just can't do it as quickly as, as, as we um, as they might like, because, again, that's how you would scare asset markets and it would be counterproductive to a lot of their policy. Right. They, uh, what they want is inflation so they can inflate away the debt. However, inflation with low nominal yields, if the market catches on then and yields rise, then real rates uh, will rise as well. They don't want they want they're very happy with deeply negative real rates. And, you know, they are the the. the they, they are the banker to the U.S. government, so that serves the deeply indebted governments very well. Yeah, you're, look, look, it, it, 
if if they try to get all of their goals accomplished at once, they could do it, right? Like they have an unlimited ability to print money and and retire debts, at least the public debts. You know, we've not it's unclear with respect to corporate debt. I'm sure they could change the rules. They could get this done overnight if they actually wanted to. The problem with getting it done overnight is you break the financial system and you have runaway inflation and you have a real big problem on your hands. And so the the reality is is they want inflation. They just want to control it. Now, that's a totally different discussion, whether or not they're going to be able to control it. I certainly believe that, you know, as long as this economy continues to be mostly market based and function as a function of people's faith in in, in the system, I do believe it's prone to having, you know, deflationary shocks like Jeff Snyder talks about this all the time. You know, there's there's the the way the system is set up. You know, I have to trust you, Jack, when I lend money to you and that you're going to give it back to me. And that's a system that's naturally prone to having boom bust cycles. And so I don't believe that we've we've moved anywhere away from that. Um, if anything, that system has only got more prone to more booms and busts as a function of the incremental uh, policy support we tend to get on on the downside. Darius, I'm curious. You see, so you believe in these sort of uh, perpetual nature of boom bust cycles. Does the fact that we haven't had a global sort of market panic or recession over the past 13 years change? And setting aside the COVID crisis, you know, uh, I mean, I, I guess you can. You, you can say we obviously we did have a recession. We had a hor- period of horrible asset um, deflation and sell off. But, you know, you can say you can blame COVID for that and say it wasn't sort of, uh, you know, natural. Um, does does do you do you have any confidence that, um, uh, you know, we've reached a, we've exited the boom and bust period? And if not, you know, aren't we kind of due uh, having not have a recession for 13 years? I think the only thing we've learned in the last 13 years is that these booms and busts keep getting bigger, at least in market response terms. Right. Like, the, like we've continu- we've continuously disassociated asset markets from the underlying economy. Or actually, no, I will say this. No, I, I'll take that back. What we've done is 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 create an economy that requires incremental, greater and greater units of incremental capital to actually get the same amount of productivity out of out of the worker or not or out of the, the capital good. And so, like that, to me is 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 it only makes the it amplifies the boom bust cycle, which is why we're buying 120 billion dollars of bonds a month, and you're talking about. I don't know, seven to nine percent real nominal GDP growth. Like, listen, listen to what I just said. Like, take a step back from everything you've learned this year. Close your computer. Put your portfolio down. Stand up. Breathe. You know, yawn. The Fed is buying 120 billion dollars a month, and nominal GDP could be I don't know somewhere between seven and nine percent this quarter. Could be ten percent this quarter. Ten percent. They're buying 120 billion dollars of bonds. Like, like this is this is what I'm talking about. Like this, we've gone from anything that resembles normalcy to we've jumped the shark to this is this is now the game and we there's no way you back out of the game without blowing stuff up and so the reality is going back to our discussion on fed policy and and book bar's comments is this is exactly what they want they want to control a, the economy into a higher level of nominal gdp so they can inflate all the debt away this we all know this i mean if you have finance twitter you probably figured this out by now you just go read somebody on twitter we're all talking about the same things but the reality is we're all frogs being boiled in a pot of water because guess what I got to put gas in my car. I got to pay my light bill. You know, we all got to do the same things to survive. Darius, what if someone, the frog being boiled in a pot of water, is that, would you say that's bondholders, people who own long-term treasury bonds who are essentially financing the treasury government at, at a almost guaranteed loss because they're they're being paid less than inflation? I know capital gains, we can get into that. But, um, and also, Tell us why. See, I'm thinking. I'm sort of thinking at like level one, maybe level one and a half. Thinking you're you're definitely level three. Why? I'm thinking you don't. I don't want to own treasury bonds when inflation is running hot. But you actually are saying 
perhaps you should because we're in stagflation and growth is lower. So tell us a little bit about that. And put, like, maybe we can put this in the context of the epic yield flattening today, which sort of melted my brain because we had about five basis points uh, uh, you know, going up on the short end and uh, five basis points going down on the long end. So we had a yield curve twisting today, which didn't really make sense in terms of the hot inflation print. So well, tell us about, about long-term bonds and then the yield curve flattening. Yeah, so look, if stagflation is the outcome um, in terms of the economic outcome, bonds are going up, not down. They're going up. Uh, stagflation. Meaning yields are going down. Yeah, large, yield, yeah. Yields are going down, bond prices are going up. Um, that's one of the best regimes for bonds. Um, most people don't realize this, but they annualize uh, the annualized expected return for the 25 year plus boom, uh, treasury yield on a total return basis is 20% in stagflation and on a month over month basis, so on a month over month annualized basis. So that, that's like that tells you. So it, what, what we saw today is exactly what we talked about last week, which is hey, if inflation continues to surprise to the upside, and mostly with respect to the speed of the ascent in energy prices, you know, things like that, bonds are going to start to get a bit. Because what it ultimately means is you're going to start to slow growth, right? Markets can, you know, I want to say handle with, you know, air quotes, markets can handle WTI going from 80 bucks a barrel today to 100 bucks a barrel by the middle of next year. I think that's something that's fairly digestible and it'll just catalyze some more repositioning. Markets cannot handle 80 bucks today to, you know, 100 bucks by December. Like they can't. Like that the speed of the change. It's the pace, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the speed of the change really causes you know, consumers and businesses to retrench. And that's partially what we kind of saw in yesterday's data. If you allow me to unpack some of the high frequency data we got yesterday. We got the jolts data for the month of August, pretty lax statistic, but it actually ticked down 659,000 month over month. Um, that's the first downtick we've seen since, since last spring. Um, you, know, you also saw the quit rates go up pretty uh, to an all time high, 3.3%. So that what that's telling you is that, that the, the tightness in certain pockets of the labor market is really actually starting to weigh on demand in terms of people's ability to bargain for higher wages. Um, we sort of saw that followed up yesterday with the NFIB data we got for the month of September. Headline ticked down, uh, hiring plans ticked down, CapEx ticked down, but guess what ticked up? Job openings hard to fill, fewer no qualified applicants, uh, compensation plans. You know, so we, we, we are starting to see evidence of, of inflation, you know, really starting to bite into growth, specifically here in the US. And so if we get that energy price crisis, and again, I would argue we're not necessarily in a crisis yet, uh, but if we really start to see the, the speed of the change in energy prices accelerate to the upside, then it will be a crisis and it will be something that slows growth and it will be a catalyst to buy bonds. We're going to take another quick break, but we'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Welcome back to The Daily Briefing. Let's get back to top analysis of today's markets. Mm, Darius, we've got a lot of great questions here. Mauro wants to know, within cyclicals, energy has led the market for the last month. Does your reflation call see a shift in leadership within cyclicals, such as industrials and transports as well, that will participate uh, more with a reopening trade? Uh, this question seems kind of, uh, it almost seems like you're asking, like, can I play catch up to something I missed? And, and quite frankly, I don't know if that's the best starting point for an investment decision. I'm not saying that I'm not saying the answer to the question is yes or no. I'm just saying I just in general, in terms of you know trying to help coach the, the listeners, I don't I don't think that's a, a good starting point for as an investor. 
Uh, I think the appropriate starting point is this, is this a good regime for this particular thing? Is this thing cheap relative to that thing? I think that's probably a good, good place to start versus that. But to answer the question specifically, you know, our models still have China. And we, I think we were the first person to call the China bottom last year, first person to call the China peak this year. And the same models are saying, look, man, you, China's going to slow to the slowest points. Like it's it's the, the next couple of quarters, and obviously we're getting uh, we're getting uh, you, that that call is being augmented by you know the monetary con- or contract borderline monetary contraction in China. They've done nothing to ameliorate that with respect to monetary easing. Um, you're seeing obviously a commitment to regulatory tightening as a function of you know common prosperity. You know China's slowing to its slowest point over the next couple of quarters. So do I really want to be long a basic material or or an industrial company that has a lot of exposure to China? Not really. Doesn't mean it's not going to work. You know, like if we, we put on a, if Citadel puts on a go cyclical trade, cyclicals are going to work. But that doesn't necessarily mean I need to be, you know, long, you know, some basic material company that has to sell a bunch of stuff to China. Because quite frankly, I think that when, when the tide does turn on the reflation trade, because again, this isn't going to be as, 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 if it comes to fruition, we're still talking about things that are going to occur in the future. So let's, let's, let's put a range of probable outcomes around it. Um, there's no certainty in financial markets. If this reflation trade comes to fruition, it's going to be shorter in duration. Than the previous one we exited from let's call it november through to early june um it'll likely be much smaller in amplitude because again i, I made this funny joke on my uh, on my round the horn video on saturday we published that to our subscribers every saturday uh, i said look panels are probably not going to make go back to the same highs that we saw in, in q1 of this year and you're not going to get the same kind of response in asset markets from a reflation trade perspective because again at that moment in time you had five things happening that almost rarely ever happen um, in, in economic terms. You had growth accelerating, inflation accelerating, corporate profit growth accelerating, monetary easing, record monetary easing, record fiscal stimulus. Like this stuff never happens at the same time. You know, yeah. right now you can- We make- didn't know how good we had it, Darius. I mean, you oh, did, no, we, I didn't know did. how good I was it. very clear about this. Uh, anybody, uh, I would, anybody who, was, who even knew who I was, knew I was yelling at the top of my lungs, that Bitcoin's going to 100,000, that, you know, all this, I was you basically, were, were you, I couldn't have been more clear how yeah. bullish I was. I, I watched yeah. a lot of your videos, uh, you know, very closely because I was like making the charts and everything. So I, you, you definitely were ahead on this. Talk about risk on. Um, Joshua Guzman, uh, who actually is a friend of mine, has a great question. Uh, says, if Darius is bullish on Bitcoin as a risk on move in Q4, does he see meme stocks making a comeback, specifically GameStop? And he also mentions Dogecoin. Again, this goes back to the joke that I'm trying to make. We had Jackson 5 in Q1 that was part of the meme stock move. Right now, at best, we have Hanson Brothers, right? Like, like, <laughs> like, Umbop is not like, you know, uh, bah, 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 bah. like, it just doesn't sound the same. Like, don't get me wrong, Umbop slaps. That's a great song. But these guys have catalogs of phenomenal music, right? And so to answer the meme stock question is kind of the same question I'm, I'm saying with, with the tickles. How do you get to the same outcomes in financial markets with way less? Uh, supportive dynamics. You're going from 120 billion a month to something less than that. You know the Fed, the TGA account is not going straight down like it was at the beginning of the year in terms of adding the net liquidity. You might have a decent bounce in growth, but that's only going to be for a couple of months until we get back into the trend in deceleration we're getting as a function of you know rolling off of rescue fiscal stimulus, the dwindling consumer balance sheet support, and oh by the way, tough comps. Uh, those haven't gone anywhere. Uh, it's just not the same outlook. But again, what we're trying to do is you know help investors. You know, position their portfolios proactively for these sort of changes in market leadership, you know, changes in, in, in asset class rotations. And ultimately, we think we'll see another one, you know, let's say Q1 or Q2 of next year. Right, we got a, another great question from Eric Frith, 
who wants to know, uh, where does Darius see A, break-even rates, and B, home prices going over the next 12 to 24 months? Darius, not only do I love this question, but it's also a great way to talk about a phenomenal chart that you have. Um, so break-even rates is inflation break-even. Where does the market think inflation is headed? I believe they edged higher today, at least on the 10-year rate. So that's talk to us about that. And then secondly, you've got this phenomenal chart that we can cover on later uh, about home prices and owner-equivalent rent. So first, break-even rates, and secondly, home prices, which we'll have the chart for. Yeah, so break-even rates are going to track energy prices. So the speed of energy prices um, will really tell you where they're going. Um, just in general, as a, as a, in terms of all the academic literature I've read over the course of my career, break-even rates are very not are, are extremely unpredictive of in future inflation over those time horizons. So like the 10-year break-even is doesn't tell you jack all or f all about 10-year forward inflation. Same thing with those consumer inflation surveys. What they do tell you right now is the supply and demand for a break-even at certain prices or intervals. And so right now it's clearly telling you if you look at the 10-year break-even chart, it actually broke out to a high. It had been in this really narrow consolidation band since let's call it June. You know, and it finally broke out to a new high. And so to me, that's one of those dynamics that suggested that, hey, look, you're now starting to get confirmation from the fixed income markets that actually uh, reflation may be on the horizon. Because typically you don't tend to see, you know, longer term break even rates uh, move higher like that unless there's a real move to pro cyclicality. So that's positive at the margin. Uh, what was the second? Oh, uh, unpacking the chart. This yeah. OER chart. So this is one of my favorite charts. It shows uh, the relationship between. A home price appreciation, that's the blue line in the top panel, uh, relative to uh, owner's equivalent rent, that's the red line in the top panel. And historically, in the green the green a uh, shaded area uh, chart down below, just shows the spread between those two year-over-year uh, -year growth or inflation rates, whatever you want to call it. Um, historically, so when you're speaking, when you've seen this, that, that spread hit a cyclical peak, you know, basically where we are now, that's 10 to presage, uh, you know, 12, 18, at least, no, sorry, 18 to 24 months of ex uh, persistent acceleration in owner's equivalent rent. Now, why is that the case? Well, it makes obviously sense fundamentally if you think about the economics of it all. Home, high home prices price people out of the, the, the housing market and they go into the rental market. But I think the most important dynamic that actually happens is people who made money on their houses sell their houses and they look around, they can't buy another house. So they hop into the rental market and you start to inflate rental uh, prices as well. But I think kind of what, what, what is missing from all that, that discussion is the fact that OERs is super funky statistic. Owner's equivalent rent, yeah. Your owner's equivalent rent. It's not like you know this observable thing like oh this is my my shaker or my blender bottle and I you know it costs X Y Z and tomorrow it costs A B C and then that's you calculate the change from there. It's a little bit more funky than that. It's like okay how much did this cost in January? How much did something else? How much did my mouse cost in February? And then when we're in July, how much did this cost again? And then how much did that cost again in August? It's really really bizarre and funky like that. I'm sure somebody whoever created that did it with the express intent. Of keeping inflation statistics, you know, in a narrow range of bands, because what's about to happen over the next 12 months is tradable goods uh, inflation is going down. We know that uh, you might actually see food and energy price inflation go down, if only because of the base effects. Um, and then, but you're going to see things like OER continue to trend higher. Um, and if that's the case, what we're talking about is headline inflation slowing, but not getting to a level that's consistent with previous bottoms in in, in prior cycles. So. That to me continues to support our, our main thesis on inflation, which is it's transitory rate of change terms, but it's persistent in levels terms. We're going to we're talking about a higher level of inflation going forward um, uh, in the U.S. economy specifically. Yeah, uh, well, just because it took me a few glances at this chart, Darius, to fully get it. So I'm going to explain to our viewers and the chart with the red and blue lines, the 
blue line is the housing prices, and the red line is the is rental prices on on a a year over year change. So the idea being that the blue line leads the red line. That like let's say in two thousand and five two thousand six housing prices actually st started to decline in late two thousand five. Um, however, it was it wasn't uh, until a few months later, or actually like a year later that uh, rental prices started to roll over too. Now we're in the exact opposite thing where housing prices are actually very high. Uh, everyone knows in the US it's a super hot housing market, but rental prices are only starting to rear their heads. So the idea being that rental prices could be could really drive CPI higher or at least keep it persistently high over the next year. Um, let's, let's put this uh, down. Um, Darius, thank you so much for joining us on The Daily Briefing. As always, it's phenomenal having you having you here, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to to having your your analysis uh, going forward. <laughs> there we go. Um, so uh, thank you so much, Darius. Thank you to everyone watching. Uh, please check out my interview with uh, Peter Bookfar on Real Vision Live. We we also talk about inflation. Also on the essential tier, there is a phenomenal interview about China with uh, China expert Michael Pettis with and Michael Nicoletos. And definitely stay tuned for uh, the daily briefing tomorrow, which will be me and Ash Bennington, which it will be a uh, special one, not one to miss. So thank you to everyone watching and have a good night. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.